Okay, good evening everyone and welcome to the Pratt Library. My name is Reginald Harris. I'd like to thank you all very much for coming on this rainy Tuesday um, to tonight's talk by uh, the wonderful Jill Johns. Um, this is a part of our series of programs and uh, author events that we host here at this uh, branch and also other locations throughout the city. We have our lovely compass over there on the table for you to uh, pick up and see who else is coming. And I will note, since this is Tuesday, the next two Tuesdays we have something going on. Uh, next Tuesday, the 12th, Steve Luxenberg uh, is here, senior editor of the Washington Post, uh, with his new book, Annie's Ghost, a uh, true uh, story about a family secret uh, in his family. And then on the following Tuesday, the 19th, um, it is David O. Stewart, who was one of the uh, the lead defense counsel in the Clinton impeachment trial, talking about the Andrew Johnson impeachment trial. Uh, um, impeached, I guess he knows a little bit something about that. So uh, those are the following Tuesdays. But tonight we are very pleased to have Jill Johns here to talk about her new book, Eiffel's Tower. Um, it's a little difficult for us to believe now that... Um, that's such a universally recognized symbol of Paris and France uh, that not everybody was too happy about the construction of, uh, of the tower uh, as part of the World's Fair in 1889. Uh, for example, and actually this is my favorite anti-tower quote from the book here, um, it was denounced as anti-artistic, contrary to French genius, a project more in character with America, where taste is not yet very developed, than Europe, much less France. So, um, however, after it opened uh, 120 years ago on March 31st, 1889, it became something we uh, now can actually recognize. In addition to being a success, it was also a huge marketing success. And Ms. John writes that Eiffel Towers were replicated on handkerchiefs and caps, was eaten in chocolate and marchipan, formed into cigar cases and handbells, ink stands and candlesticks. It dangled from gentlemen's watches and was fastened in the ladies' ears. Uh, the story of how the tower was built and the 1889 World's Fair it was created to celebrate is told in uh, Dr. John's very entertaining history. As the full title of her book suggests, and the full title is Eiffel's Tower, and the World's Fair where Buffalo Bill beguiled Paris, the artists quarreled, and Thomas Edison became a count. Her story covers more than just the construction of a symbol of the age of technology. Um, Annie Oakley and the Indians, uh, artists uh, Van Gogh and Gauguin, James McNeil Whistler, various crown heads of Europe, and the brilliant but eccentric New York Herald publisher James Gordon Bennett, Jr., and other high and low figures from the late 19th century meet under the all-seeing eye of the tower. And then, of course, there's the engineer, uh, Monsieur Eiffel himself, who also maintained an apartment. This is, I didn't know this. This is great. Thank you. An apartment at the pinnacle of the tower, all the way up there, 1,000 feet, complete with plush furniture, expensive art, and a piano. How they got that... Anyway, okay, <laughs> so this is history that is enjoyable to read, that is as enjoyable to read, <coughs> excuse me, as it obviously must have been for Dr. Johns to write. <coughs> and, excuse me, sorry about that. Um, author of four previous nonfiction books, Conquering Gotham, Building Penn Station and Its Tunnels, Empires, Light, uh, Empires of Light, Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse, and The Race to Electrify the World, 
Hepcats, Narcs, and Pipe Dreams, and South Bronx Rising. Joe Johns uh, has been a world traveler from a very early age, a journalist and a freelance writer. He's a PhD in American history from Johns Hopkins, was named a National Endowment for the Humanities Scholar, and received several grants from the Ford Foundation. Now, I know that we are not supposed to promote other people, but since the Ivy is so wonderful to us, we figured that we would be wonderful to them as well. And I picked up one of the cards. It doesn't have the date. But if you or your friends could not make it this uh, this evening, what is the date for the Ivy? The 16th of May. She will be appearing. Oh, it is right here. Miss Saturday, May 16th at 6 at the Ivy. And they're doing something we unfortunately cannot. No wine? Oh, come on. That's part of the reason I was going to say it. It says wine tasting. Come on. It says wine tasting. We want books and wine. Boo. Okay, well, in that case, then tell your friends that they really missed it here. They should have been here. All right. As one reviewer of the work has written, if you missed attending, speaking of missing things, if you missed attending the 1889 World's Fair in Paris, Jill John's new history, Eiffel's Tower, likely is your last chance. You will experience the building and opening of the Eiffel Tower. You will even feel the vertigo. It's a great pleasure to welcome the vertigo-inducing Jill Johns. Uh, so the big question is, can everyone hear well from that? Well, thank you for all coming out on a really horrible, rainy evening. Um, and we're going to get right going because I have lots and lots of... Uh, Images and um, they're really just something to see. Many of these are actually in my book, but many of them are not, and so I just uh, wanted to be able to share them with people. So uh, this is Gustav Eiffel, and he was um, in the 1880s already a very successful bridge builder, not just in France but all over the world. He had offices in Shanghai, Peru. And what he built, in part, in these distant places were modular bridges. So um, this will give you an idea of what some of his masterpieces. The one at the bottom is uh, the Garabit Viaduct. This was the tallest railway bridge in the world at 400 feet. So when you look at these, it's not so surprising when you see what he was proposing as the centerpiece of the World's Fair. Let's see which is this. You can see some resemblance. And this was his uh, iron tower of 300 meters. And the, the World's Fair of 1889 was being held by the Third Republic to celebrate the centennial of the downfall of the Bastille. And there was a, a general contrast for what would be the centerpiece. And uh, my, my only regret was that one of the uh, other entries, which was a giant working guillotine, did not get built also. <laughs> anyway, uh, the elites of Paris really um, were outraged at this. I mean, it's, it's actually an incredibly revolutionary structure, if you know what the architecture of the time looked like. And uh, they gathered themselves together uh, on a regular basis to uh, denounce it. And I, So another one of them, I, I liked his quote, but here's another one. This horror of black and gigantic factory chimney crushing all Paris beneath its barbarous mass. And, of course, then there's always the kicker. Even commercial America would not have it. Um, but anyway, uh, 
Eiffel did win the contest and he began to build and you see here the foundation is going up. He actually began building in, in late January and he was on an incredibly tight deadline. Now he never accepted any of this criticism and he would always uh, respond uh, and the I'll, one of his uh, remarks was, the tower will have its own beauty. It will show we are not simply an amusing people, but also the country of engineers and builders. So you, you can see why people were actually initially a bit worried. I mean, this is rather hideous looking at, at this stage. And uh, it was also denounced as an odious column of bolted metal, which... Uh, Eiffel responded, my tower is not French, they say. It is big enough and clumsy enough for the English or Americans, but it is not our style. The truth is that actually the English and Americans would have loved to have been building a thousand-foot tower because it actually had been a plan of their own that they weren't able to carry out. It was the French who were now going to do this, and uh, the Americans were actually very ill-humored about the prospect of this Eiffel Tower. So you see um, at the bottom, I mean, the, the tower was basically like a giant 3D puzzle, 18,000 pieces of wrought iron, each of which weighed about three tons, and they were riveted together. There were um, 20 teams of, of these um, riveters, I believe 10 in each. So actually only 200 people were, were building this huge thing. And you see it's, you know, moving right along here. And, uh, I mean, this is, is really, as I said, a, a race against time. Now, every aspect of the tower was original, in, including the construction. So Eiffel devised these uh, cranes, which moved up and down to get the pieces up, and they uh, were going up and down on railway uh, tracks. And so by the end of uh, December 1888, I mean, things are really going al along well, and the tower, this is now the tallest structure in the world. And this is why the Americans were so bad-humored about this, because uh, at this point, the tower is now surpassing the Washington Monument, which had been the tallest building in the world at 555 feet. And not only that, it had only been finished in 1884, so the Americans had a very brief period in which they could lord it over everyone else, and now the French were ahead of us. Um, so as you can see, this is not work for the faint-hearted. Um, this picture, uh, not this picture, but about at the, the end of February, the first journalist was allowed to go to the top of the Eiffel Tower. He was a reporter named Robert Henri from Le Figaro. And I'm going to read you his description of this um, experience. So he arrived, and they had to walk up. And by the time they got up to 660 feet, the twilight had really engulfed the tower. And as they be began to continue to ascend, only a few people, they had started out with many people, now only a few people were uh, following. So Robert Henri says, the staircase, he discovers, was not attached to the tower except at the top. It oscillated sickeningly beneath us. We were now only four, Monsieur Eiffel, Monsieur Ricard, the guide, and myself, we had passed the steps, and there were only ladders, poised on thick planks which rode the immensity of space. The ladders were lashed together with mighty ropes. Look not to the right nor to the left. Keep your eyes only on the rung of the ladder on which you are about to place your foot. 
After the third ladder, we attained the platform 900 feet above the earth. Here, the riveters were at work, a dozen men lost in space. At this point, Henri looks around and wonders what a plunge into the abyss below might be. Brr, I was going a little mad myself, and forgetful, really, of where I stood, I gave myself a little irritated shake. As I did so, the weight of my body seemed to slip forward, and I hung for an instant inclined over the edge of the Eiffel Tower. At this moment, he grabs a rope, and he finds it moving before he writes himself, and he hears... Eiffel say through the twilight, you should never touch a rope. That one is attached only to a pulley. Had you leaned more heavily on it, the consequences would not have been pleasant. It is now time to descend. So uh, when Robert Henri has this unnerving experience, it was several weeks after this uh, photograph was taken. So uh, one of the, the problems, you notice they're all walking up the Eiffel Tower. They have not got the elevators in, nor are they working. And one of the stipulations of uh, Eiffel getting the contract was that only French firms could work on the tower. However, six months into construction, they still didn't, hadn't found a, a French firm that could solve this problem, which was getting an elevator up the curved leg from the, the bottom to the second floor. And um, so they were forced to um, hire the Otis firm. And all I can say to you is it was a very acrimonious relationship. I mean, Otis was successful. <laughs> Their um, elevator did work, and it was in there, but it all ended up in the end in the law courts. So the tower does get completed. Um, the fair is going to open on May 6th, but while it's actually the structure is completed, the interior is not, and there are painters all over busy painting, and the restaurants are all busy installing their wine cellars in the, in the sky. And so the fair opens May 6th, but the tower does not. It does open a week later, and Eiffel is uh, very happy to welcome the public. It opens at 11.50, and he's there in person. But um, everyone has to walk up because there are no elevators. Um, and the um, Figaro very cleverly installs its own newspaper on the second floor where they put out a, a daily little paper which is about what goes on in the Eiffel Tower and at the fair. So you can see, I mean, really how prominent uh, in this Belle Epoque uh, cityscape the Eiffel Tower really is, and how beautiful it is. I should say that all these people who had been uh, criticizing Eiffel and the Tower and had nothing good to say had, by and large, really eaten their words, and everyone had come to admire it, with the exception of Guy de Maupassant, who never uh, always viewed it as a nightmare. So one of the things that was really uh, wonderful about the fair is it attracted all kinds of ambitious and interesting people, and one of them is James Gordon Bennett, and you see, so he's the proprietor of the New York Herald. However, he lived in uh, Paris, where he had been since 1877, when he really had to flee Manhattan after a tremendous scandal, which is that he arrived drunk at his fiancée's New Year's Day party and proceeded to pee into the fireplace in front of all the entire guests. So his future brother-in-law um, flogged him, and this led to an illegal duel, and, and Bennett uh, then decamped to Paris and ran his paper by cable 
So um, he was tired of not having a newspaper, you know, in Paris that he could visit. And so in anticipation of the fair, he started the European edition. And I mean, as you can imagine, this is the ancestor of what we now know as the International Herald Tribune. So that's uh, Gordon Bennett, and he's uh, knowing that lots of Americans will be coming. He gets the paper going, so it'll be, you know, ready when the fair starts. And then there's James McNeil Whistler, who uh, called himself the butterfly. And there is uh, really nothing he liked better in life than fisticuffs, feuds, and uh, all of that, uh, and lawsuits. He was very big on lawsuits. And he liked all of that to be in the newspapers. And his memoir, which he uh, called The Gentle Art of Making Enemies, was really, you know, many newspaper clips and indignant letters and, and uh, you know, stories about his lawsuits. But like all the artists of the time, it was incredibly important to him to be seen, his, for his art to be at the ex- exhibition. Now, another person who felt the same way was Paul Gauguin. Now, in contrast to uh, Whistler, he was really unknown. And while Whistler uh, you know, was very prominently displayed and won a gold medal, Paul Gauguin had to settle for uh, showing his things in a cafe where um, the music was provided by a female Russian orchestra. And Gauguin was very distressed because in the end he did not sell a single piece of art off those walls. And then there was, of course, Thomas Edison. And uh, he was world famous at this point for his incandescent light bulb and uh, electrical industry um, also for having made the telegram much improved and the telephone. And now he had improved his phonograph, and he wrote to one of his European partners, without doubt, the Paris Fair will be the best opportunity which can or will be had to introduce my phonograph to the peoples of Europe, in fact, the whole world. And as such, my desire is to take every advantage of it. And so he had a very big exhibit here. And for many people, this would be the first place they would ever experience recorded sound. And then, of course, these posters began appearing all over Paris. The French were utterly mystified. Who was this person, and why was he coming with these big, hairy beasts? So the fair opens. You can see it's very beautiful. Uh, we would be, it, we, this vantage point is basically to the right of the bottom of the Eiffel Tower, and this is um, the central dome. And it's unfortunate that this is not color because these buildings were incredibly colorful. They were covered with faience tile, in really brilliant turquoise and green and uh, shimmering gold. Then there was loads of statuary, um, and the grounds were very beautifully landscaped with grown trees that they transplanted, lots of uh, flowers, fountains, and everywhere there were orchestras. So the, the whole overall effect was very sort of exuberant and lots of gaiety. And uh, one thing I haven't mentioned is that because this was a uh, celebration of the downfall of monarchs, um, aside from France, all of Europe was ruled by kings and queens and emperors. And so they officially boycotted the fair, which (laughs) meant that um, little countries, unimportant countries like Bolivia and Nicaragua were given pride of place and really went to a lot of trouble to have these very beautiful uh, pavilions. The, uh, so the French really could sort of do whatever they wanted because they had loads of space since everyone was boycotting the fair. And they, they were very imaginative, and they had all what was called this history of human habitation. 
And so, for instance, like in this Japanese house, it was full of Japanese, and they were um, running a little Japanese tea house, and they were selling Japanese uh, goods and making them. So it was very delightful. I mean, people really got to see all kinds of uh, other cultures. And the other thing that the French decided to do was introduce their own people to their new colonial empire, and uh, they just re recreated these uh, sort of semi-authentic aspects of these countries that they had uh, come to be involved in. And this particular uh, place, the Rue de Cairo, was very, very uh, popular in part because it featured belly dancing. Now you notice that everyone is very, very well clothed, and so to have these half-clothed women gyrating around was um, in these uh, fairly authentic Egyptian coffee houses was, was really exotic and popular. And apparently, especially with American female tourists, uh, the American men thought it was really unseemly the way they liked to uh, crowd in and, and watch the belly dancing. This was The fair was on about 228 acres, so it covered a lot of ground, and people got around on this little open-air Docaville Railroad, and you're seeing here it comes into the uh, Moroccan uh, pavilion. Also among the colonies that were introduced were uh, Vietnam, known then as Tonkin, and they brought from there these rickshaws, which people had never seen before, and they would apparently go at a really sort of a hellish speed through all the, the fair crowds, so they were kind of a terrifying element. There were many firms that uh, did have uh, a presence at the fair, including, you see here, this Van Houten Coco, and what they brought from Indonesia was an entire village, which included these Javanese court dancers. Now, these women and their dancing were, one, were really one of the cultural sensations of the fair, and all the artists, um, including Gauguin, Toulouse-Lautrec, Rodin, uh, Pissarro, I mean, they visited this uh, dancing many times, and there were many uh, paintings and drawings done of these young women. There, there were, the dance troupe was actually quite a bit bigger than this. And among the many marvels of the fair was this full-scale replica of Angkor Wat, which had just been uh, rediscovered in, in the jungles of Cambodia. And uh, again, this was something that Gauguin wrote to his fellow artists and said, you know, you have to see this. This is just something fantastic. Uh, there were also uh, various uh, African villages, in including uh, one from Senegal, which had now become a, a French colony. And then, of course, <laughs> so finally, Buffalo Bill, this mysterious being that all has all these uh, posters, his show opens on May 18th to a huge sellout invited crowd. And you see this man standing in the background. This was Frank Richmond, and he was the ardor. So the, the idea of this show is it was a very sanitized narrative of the winning of the West, or, you know, by the white man conquering the Indian and the buffalo and so forth. So Frank Richmond, I mean, certainly knew no French, but he memorized the whole narration in French, which meant, of course, the French didn't ha couldn't understand a word he said. <laughs> so, so the show begins, and there's all these, you know, kind of whooping and wars, and, and the French are just sitting there silent. I mean, they're completely puzzled as to what's going on because they don't understand. And uh, Buffalo Bill gets very concerned, and he decides that they are going to send Annie Oakley out. Um, remember, this is a time when many people are in the military and many, many people hunt. So the um, ability to shoot well is something that people really un understand and appreciate. 
So Annie Oakley was an absolutely, um, you know, from the time she was a girl, an, an amazing sh sharpshooter. And she's, as you see, this very young-looking person. And so she comes out, and the French can't believe their eyes, and especially when she gets on her horse and charges around, and she is plugging holes into stunting pieces. So they just absolutely love Annie Oakley. And from that time on, the French are just sold on uh, the Wild West. And they really love the Indians, Les Peaux Rouge, the Redskins. And um, they also are very enthused because they're Canadian trappers, and there's sort of the French element to that. The, the, the Canadians can speak French, and, of course, the French like that. And then this is the Deadwood stage. Any celebrity, and there were many, who came to the fair would be invited to ride around, careen around is more the word, in the Deadwood stage as it was uh, chased after by uh, Indians, but then you would be rescued by Buffalo Bill and the cavalry. So Buffalo Bill became the most beloved uh, and lionized uh, American in Paris since the days of Benjamin Franklin, and he never did quite bother to mention that he had a wife, Lulu, back in North Platte, because he was really a ladies' man, and you can see why, because he was very handsome. And he was a very charismatic, uh, you know, sort of generous, wonderful type. Now, Annie Oakley, oh, and, I, and he was a tremendous social butterfly, uh, went all over to Paris to every kind of social event. Annie Oakley and her husband, Frank Butler, uh, were much more private, and what, what they liked to do was go to the, the private hunting clubs and... Uh, you know, really kind of enjoy the French in that way. And again, they were, the French just never could get over her skill as a, as a sharpshooter. So the, the Wild West show was actually all set up out in the um, suburbs of Neuilly, if you can imagine this, and that's where the arena was. And all the Indians were there with their teepees and the um, cowboys living in their tents and, you know, the, the mess hall and all the rest of it and the 20 buffalo and the many uh, ponies and this became incredibly fashionable for the French to come out here and stroll around. And the French courtesans, the demi-mondaines, really uh, adored the Indians. And that became you know, uh, quite a feature of the summer as they lured them out into uh, gas-lit Paris. And then you can see, I mean, the, the Indians made quite an impression on the French. So now this is Rosa Bonheur, who none of us would remember, but she was at this time an enormously famous painter whose specialty was animals. And uh, actually, just a, a few years before the fair, Commodore uh, Vanderbilt had bought one of her paintings, the Horse Fair, for $55,000, which was an immense fortune, and had presented it to the Metropolitan Museum, where it hangs to this day. Now, you'll notice she's wearing pants, which, you know, to us is no big deal, but this was so unusual and rare in France that she required a permit. <laughs> and there it is. Um, and this was the thing that always people always remarked about her. The other thing I should say is she was the first woman in France to be uh, awarded the Legion of Honor. So she was a lesbian whose lifelong partner, uh, Natalie Micah, had died early in the year, and her uh, art dealer uh, thought, well, maybe it would cheer her up to come and see Buffalo Bill, which gives you a chance to see Buffalo Bill's tent, complete with the buffalo head, the American flag, and inside the scalp of Yellowhand, which uh, was supposedly from his days as an Indian fighter. And these are uh, Chiefs Rocky Bear and Red Shirt. In any case, um, 
she really did, did love this whole scene, and pretty soon she had become artist-in-residence at the Wild West camp. I mean, this is a great thing about this fair. I mean, there's this, this incredible crossing of paths of the most unlikely people. Um, and I really actually only touch on a few of them when I, you know, here tonight. So she paints this very famous painting, which is now out in Cody, Wyoming, the museum there. And then Buffalo Bill incorporates it into his uh, poster for, you know, a later tour. And um, because she was hugely famous in the United States, most of, she'd become enormously rich from selling her art to Americans. So um, here's the, you know, underneath the Eiffel Tower, and it was all about, you know, meet me under the Eiffel Tower, and, uh, you know, as I said, all the people who had had bad things to say about it uh, had pretty much reneged. And one of the whole ideas of the fair was that, you know, this was to celebrate democracy, to celebrate what ordinary people could do. They didn't need aristocrats to do anything for them. And uh, Gustav Eiffel, one of his remarks was, um, we gave the monarchy, monarchs the spectacle of democracy happy by virtue of its own effort. Um, which is not to say that France didn't have lots of uh, aristocrats still lurking about. And one of the most prominent was a woman known, known as the Duchess Duzet. And I, I just loved this fact. So she had a charity stag hunt in the... Uh, Forest of Versailles, which was for the, uh, the, the scrofulous children's hospital, which was a word I'd never heard, but turns out to be tuberculosis. And um, one of the things, the great draws, was that the Wild West Indians would be there participating. So I just, again, the, the cross-pollination of it all. So, the, the, so the, the elevators did finally get up and running, though it was not until sometime in June, which meant that people couldn't get to the top of the Eiffel Tower until several weeks after it opened. But uh, you see here people boarding the elevator. And then this is the, the first floor. I mean, you know, really beautiful view. And all kinds of very charming things went on on the Eiffel Tower. It was very lively. And here they're letting loose these balloons. They have little postcards on them. And the idea was that those postcards were then sent back from wherever the balloon landed, and some of them um, were come, landed as far away as Hungary. So, I mean, they really could get going off on these uh, breezes. Um, and again, you know, th these really charming drawings give you a, a flavor for sort of how delightful the fair was and how many different people from different places, and you see this... Chinaman, you know, serving a dog and the, the British eating and the Eiffel Tower there. I mean, it was all, you know, very, uh, very delightful. So people got to the fair by hook or by crook. These young men came from Vienna, 750 miles, pushing one another in this uh, wheelbarrow. There was a lot, a lot of stunts went on at this fair. And then, to everyone's just joy, out of the blue, with no, uh, you know, announcement in advance, Edison shows up. And um, actually, he, he came about a month before this. He spent almost a month there. And uh, Eiffel was away recovering from, you know, just being constantly hosting people throughout the fair. And um, so Edison got off the boat and he said, I'm like everyone else. I've come to see the Eiffel Tower. And he really loved the Eiffel Tower. But the truth was, partly he was there to promote his phonograph. 
And um, this is this vast gallery of machines, which was the other really huge um, building, aside from the Eiffel Tower at the fair. And in it was, you know, all kinds of industrial progress uh, exhibited. But it also had Edison's, um, Edison's exhibit. And so this is people listening to recorded sound for the first time. And what's amazing about it is it's like listening to an iPod. I mean, look at those things. <laughs> So each of these machines had five of these sort of listening stations through these wires. And um, people stood in line for hours, and you were limited to listen to for three minutes. Um, and you, I mean, look at the looks on their faces. But um, then you had to hand your warm earbuds over to someone else, <laughs> which was sometimes kind of icky. And then, of course, uh, you know, all the world was coming. Here's a, a father of the church. And uh, they had recorded all kinds of things, including slightly racy songs. And in this one, this woman is singing a song saying, my panties are loose. So as far as he's concerned, it's just, you know, another instrument of the devil. Now, this, so when Edison came, I mean, the French went all out because they saw this as a tremendous validation of their fare. And he was, you know, such a, a towering figure of technology and progress. And they put on banquets. Uh, they gave him. They, they gave him two elevations in the Legion of Honor. He already had gotten, you know, the first you could get when he had um, exhibited there in 1881 in an electrical exhibit. So this is a soiree, as you see, given by Le Figaro. And I have this invitation because a very nice man who uh, collects uh, Buffalo Bill materials has Buffalo Bill's personal scrapbook from this six months in Paris. And this was Buffalo Bill's invitation to this soiree, which I can tell you he showed up in, in his most splendid white uh, beaded outfit because Le Figaro, of course, reported this. And you notice among the evening's... Uh, uh, attractions are the Javanese dancers. I mean, that was a you know, big deal. And of course, the phonograph is wherever Edison goes through all this, he always has a phonograph with him and he's always playing it and displaying it. Um, but I just I thought this was great. So the fair is, is winding up and there re it really is a, a place of marvels. And one of the things I, I loved among all the many marvels was a, um, a head the size of a large nut, which was uh, at the pavilion of the equator, real head of an adult Indian shrunken by a process known only to certain tribes. So there was that on one side of the scale, and on the other side of the scale of oddities, what was known as le tono monstre, which was the world's largest oaken wine barrel that was built down in the wine country, and it took 10 pairs of oxen to drag it up to the fair, where it held 200,000 bottles of wine. So <laughs> there were you know, all kinds of uh, things to see and experience at the fair. And in fact, people were so sad to see the fair end that it was extended for a week and to November 6, making the fair you know, a, a full six months. And on the last night of the fair, there were all these, uh, you know, tremendous fireworks, uh, many of them coming off the Eiffel Tower. And Eiffel had an apartment at the pinnacle of this tower, um, as was mentioned at the, at 
the beginning when uh, he was introducing me. And so at this last night, he had invited, you know, his lucky guests. And one of uh, Edison had gone home, but he sent one of his employees to go up to Eiffel's uh, apartment and present him with a wax cylinder that Edison had recorded in uh, New Jersey and sent over that involved various, you know, beautiful opera singing. And then Edison himself just thanking uh, Eiffel for having, you know, had him up to the top of his tower where the composer Gounod, who composed uh, Faust, played piano and serenaded everyone. So, I mean, it was, this was another, I mean, I had no idea that Edison had ever met Eiffel and that they had sat together at the top of the, the Eiffel Tower. Um, so that was a sort of a, a lovely encounter. So Eiffel had, you know, I mean, it was a really splendid summer for him because remember he uh, endured two years of constant brickbats about how hideous and awful his tower was going to be. And, in fact, it was, you know, just an incredible success. It was instantly world famous. And um, also it was financially a triumph. By the end of the summer, the tower had uh, had two million people visit it and had paid for itself. And I just want to show you this because, of course, Buffalo Bill, uh, they played for another week, and then they set out on their European tour, which was the first time they had toured Europe. And again, this is just such an incongruous photo of Buffalo Bill and the Indian chiefs in uh, Venice. <laughs> so that's it. Um, I'd be happy to take any questions. And um, I just want to thank you all for, for coming out.